Hello, and welcome back. You are joining us today for our 29th episode of Opportunity Thrives. I'm Jean Sharp, and on this show, we are committed to better supporting the needs of today's secondary students through interviews with students, teachers, administrators, technologists, and education influencers, we want to understand what's working in our schools today, what's not, and how we can impact positive, lasting change. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions on our show. Please click in the podcast notes to leave us a review, provide your input, or send us your questions. You can also reach out to us at info at opportunitythrives.com. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Kim Smith, who is the Executive Director of the League of Innovative Schools for Digital Promise. And recently, it was also announced that Kim will serve as the Executive Director for the new Center for Inclusive Innovation. Congratulations and welcome, Kim. Thank you. So glad to be here. Kim, as we get started today, would you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and the pathway that led you to Digital Promise and the League of Innovative Schools? Sure. So interestingly enough, I was a journalism major in school and had big dreams of becoming a copywriter on in Manhattan, right, for a big advertising agency. And I was excited to, to make the move to New York. But I went and visited some family in D.C. and was really pulled into um, the city. At being a young person and wanting to kind of experience a new environment, I moved to Washington, D.C. and ended up getting a temp job at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And I had no idea at the time who CPB was as an organization, but I landed in an initiative funded by the Walter Annenberg Foundation that supported learning at a distance through video telecourses for college credit. So we produced 100 and 200 level video courses for college credit so that students could earn college credit at a distance. We partnered with McGraw-Hill and other textbook companies and also community colleges so that homemakers who were taking care of young children could earn college credit at home Uh, Military folks that were on ships that were out at sea could earn college credit. And it was there that I really caught the bug, if you will, for education. I was just swept up in this notion of how could I support and enable people to learn. And at that point in time, I could have gone in the path of being a teacher, but I actually really was enthralled by the idea of creating supports through digital networks and digital tools. And so I began to engage in thinking about how do you create really engaging learning experiences in the online space really early when the internet first launched. And then I got my MBA and wanted to see what life was like with for-profit. And I spent some time at Discovery Education, about 10 years leading up their digital portfolio of programs and curricular services and teacher professional development, made my way back to nonprofit to PBS. And that was a really fun experience working with 170 public television stations across the country and partnering with local communities and school districts to support teachers and learners. And then before I came to Digital Promise, I was at the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, which was a really powerful experience because we worked primarily with students that were underserved and largely students that are underserved are not thought of as entrepreneurs. And 
guess what? You know, they certainly are. They have entrepreneurial mindset, probably more than most, uh, if you think about the experiences that they have to navigate. So I spent time there building an entrepreneurial pathway for students and then ended up coming to Digital Promise, where the work that I do now is just really fulfilling because I'm working with school districts and and leaders of school districts who are are innovators and willing to push the edge uh, to advance teaching and learning. That's a fascinating journey. And you really have been at the forefront of a lot of how technology has come into education. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Digital Promise, how would you describe the mission and the purpose of the organization? Yes, it's a it's a 10-year-old organization that was originally authorized under the Higher Education Act by the Bush administration and launched out of the Obama White House. And the focus of Digital Promises was really to identify leaders across the country of school districts that were developing innovative models and tools and programs to support teaching and learning. And, you know, even 10 years ago, you know, the use of technology in the classroom was, although there were more teachers that were engaging, in terms of technology driving systemic change, We were still kind of early in that space. And so Digital Promise and the League of Innovative Schools, which today is 114 school districts across the country, really was the first organization where we were starting to see models of innovation come to life and the impact that innovation and technology could have on teaching and learning. And so the work that we do very simply is we spur innovation to create equitable opportunities to advance teaching and learning. We do that through research and development around the biggest challenges in education from looking at uh, teacher of color pipelines to data interoperability to How do you create physical learning spaces that really are conducive to students and how they learn today? So it's an organization that allows us to really work in partnership with school districts, teachers, educators, parents, and families to really try to push push the notion of what education looks like. And certainly then, explain a little bit about how the League of Innovative Schools emerged from the heart of Digital Promise. Can you describe how the League of Innovative Schools aligns with that mission and purpose within Digital Promise itself? Sure. Uh, The League itself was the flagship school network for Digital Promise. It actually uh, was the first initiative that was launched under the organization. And the work of the League has, it started as a, a small group. It was about 25 districts when it first began. And we purposely kept the League you know, pretty small. You know, over 10 years, it's it's grown up to 114 districts. And we do that because it's really important to have a network of, of leaders that can develop deep relationships, deep peer-based relationships, can share strategies, can learn from each other's models, can work collectively to advance, you know, this notion of innovation. So we like to say that the League, really a network that designs champion researches and scales uh, innovation. And so what's really great about the League is not only is it a network for best practice sharing, but it's also a network for innovation in and of itself. These leaders are innovators, and so we bring them together in research and development, and they are creators of new technologies and innovation. So that's a really exciting aspect of the League that has developed over the past few years. That's fascinating. Speaking of relationships, when you think about how you foster relationships 
relationships with constituents across the League of of Innovative Schools. Can you tell us about the activities they're involved in and how the, the shared learning manifests itself in terms of improvements or changes that are happening within their school environment? Absolutely. So, you know, as a network, the programmatic components of our work that enable the network to thrive, number one, are convenings. And so we bring the league together twice a year when we can bring the league together (laughs) physically, the convenings. And so there's kind of a dual purpose of the convening in that it allows the, the league leaders, superintendents, chief academic officers, CIOs, CTOs, and sometimes principals that come together and are able to see other models in action. So we do a lot of kind of basically visits to schools so that we can see what others are doing. The other piece of the league is really focused on cohort and other ways that league uh, members can engage with each other around topics that they pick. So innovative assessment models, teacher micro-credentials, thinking about maker learning and maker spaces and aligning the kind of maker experiences to the core curriculum and core instruction. And so a lot of what we do is really focused on kind of where the need is in the league. And one of the most exciting programs we launched this past year are study tours in partnership with the Asia Society. And we took nine districts to Toronto to see how Toronto was is addressing anti-racism in their school district because they have innovative practices that they're implementing up there. So being able to not only share what's happening within the districts in the league, but also being able to take the members and show them and expose them to models that are internationally around the country. I mean, around the world. That's been one of the hallmarks of the past year. That sounds fascinating. I'm curious though, Kim, when you think about the last nine months or so, has that shifted the priorities and the agenda for the cohorts and the focus for the League of Innovative Schools? Uh, It has to a certain extent. You know, what's really, what kind of was really proven out with the value of the league is that when the, I mean, I can't even call it a pivot. It was just this, you know, flip, if you will, to virtual learning. You know, the league weathered that transition pretty well for the most part because of the systems and the tools and the approaches and the professional development models that they had already had in place. What we've been doing is mostly is bringing our members together to just, you know, frankly, share what's happening and how they're navigating this unknown space. So we've been having a lot of meetup sessions. We've been having kind of general meetups and also meetups that focus on certain topic areas, such as looking at how they're kind of sustaining their technology systems, how they're supporting parents and their technology needs, how they're looking at utilizing competency-based learning models to understand student attendance. And we've also been hosting a number of town halls where we publicly share what our league districts are doing because we feel like this is an opportunity for the league to help others think about, you know, how they're supporting their technology and learning needs in this unprecedented time. Excellent. You know, it's interesting because the word I use is disruption, right? We've just seen this massive disruption in the way that we've done schools in the past. And one of the questions that I was curious about, I love the idea that you're providing town halls, but and certainly you've talked about the support that your members in the league 
also need. But can you talk a little bit more about the leadership that the league can provide because of the experiences that they've had over the years of working together? And how can they provide some action and advocacy that perhaps leads the way for other districts? Yeah, it's been interesting because in terms of leadership, there's probably a couple areas that we focus on. You know, one is students completely being disconnected from learning because of their lack of access to technology and to broadband. So we launched a campaign called Connect Kids Now. That Now, this is a campaign that was launched by our districts. So we we are supporting that campaign in various capacities, but it is it is a advocacy step that the league wanted to take to really push for funding at the federal level for students to be connected. And so what's been really great about that piece is that as a collective, the league has come together and has created social media content. We signed a, a letter as a collective and, you know, shared that as our position on access and bandwidth. And, you know, a lot of the superintendents, you know, the position that they take is that, you know, this, this is a utility that needs to be provided by to families, um, particularly those that have need at no cost. And so that's, that's one example of, about around how the leadership of the league has really stood up at this moment in time to really speak loudly for students that are essentially in the dark. And the other way I would say is that the leaders have been sharing a lot about how they've built system infrastructure to sustain what they've put in place, because a lot of what's happening right now is kind of piecemeal and pulling things together as pieces. And so the leaders have been sharing more about how do you build a solid and sustainable infrastructure to support your technology and innovation needs going forward. Absolutely. Thank you for that. You know, I read about you on your website, and there was a a sentence that really caught my attention, that you like to surround yourself with people who continually teach you new things or introduce you to new experiences. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you have been named the Executive Director for the Center for Inclusive Innovation. Congratulations on leading that new initiative. Now, tell us what the Center for Inclusive Education will be focused on. What was the need that it grew out of and what is your vision for this new initiative? Uh, Well, thank you so much. You know, I'm so thrilled that I'm at a place at this organization where, you know, I can work with my colleagues and put forth ideas that are groundbreaking and necessary and also represent just who I am. I'll be honest with you. I mean, this is this work is in part coming from my own personal commitment to utilize every single platform and opportunity that I have as a Black woman to support and resource in any way I can ways to ensure that every child has access to the same learning experiences that I had when I was growing up. You know, a big part of this is just my heart. The other piece is that in coming into Digital Promise three and a half years ago, it was really part of my priority to begin to work in partnership with the districts around deep equity initiatives. And what was so inspiring to see is I remember standing in front of the ballroom at one of our convenings about two years ago, and I just opened the floor up to districts sharing what's their 
biggest challenge. And just equity overall came to the top and it didn't matter whether you were Darren Brawley, who is a superintendent of Compton School District in California, or Eric Gunderson, who leads Pascack Valley in New Jersey, right? Every single superintendent has a need to address equity. And so we began this initiative around inclusive innovation, which is really focused on what we call a radical commitment to equity. And how do you take away these barriers that have intentionally prevented underrepresented populations from being part of the education innovation ecosystem and really bring these folks in to the table as leaders, participants, and beneficiaries of education innovation, right? When you think about education innovation today, and I've been in this sector for, you know, 20 plus years, I've created many, many products, digital products, web-based products, and never before has there been a movement to really bring underserved populations, the people who are being most impacted by you know, all of the deficits in terms of the what's being delivered to them in terms of education, they're being most impacted. They're not at the table. So the Center for Inclusive Innovation is changing that paradigm. We are working with communities across the country in partnership with our school districts to create what I'm calling liberatory education innovation. And that means that we are purposely creating the conditions that are going to enable Black, Brown, and Indigenous kids to thrive. That's the the vision for the work. And we're just coming out of the gate with the initiative, but we have four or five projects underway. And it's it couldn't be more exciting for me personally and professionally. And timely. Certainly a great yeah. need now for us to be talking about this and and not just talking about it, but taking action on it. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more? You said you have certain projects underway right now. In the near term, what are your biggest priorities for the Center for Inclusive Innovation? Yes, we are. So there's a few pieces that are in motion. We do have some projects that we're leading. One of the most exciting projects we're leading is around teacher of color recruitment and retention. We worked with seven regions across the country. And who did we ask about how to recruit and retain teachers of color? Well, how about teachers of color? So we held conversations and design studios with teachers of color across the country. And and now we're hosting a convening that is actually much larger than we anticipated. We have almost a thousand people coming next week to learn about the ideas that these teachers have conceived of. So that gives you one example of how, you know, when you start to center and, you know, those being served. And we have a platform of digital promise to really raise up, give visibility to these ideas from the, these teachers. It helps to really demonstrate the power of this notion of inclusive innovation. The other piece of this is that, you know, we're focused on this notion of right now we're calling them incubators. So the idea is that you know, how can we as a national organization partner with community-based organizations and districts to essentially create incubators for these types of innovations that are community-based? And so, you know, my, my vision would be that, you know, somewhere three to five years from now, we have 20 incubators across the country where you're seeing the emergence of innovations that are serving and addressing the needs of Black, Brown, and Indigenous students in new ways. That's fabulous. When you think about the work and then the platform that you have with Digital Promise, how do you see this work getting out into the larger education community to really impact meaningful change? Yes. I mean, that's the you know key question. And I've been doing a lot of 
thinking about systemic levers for change. And, you know, we do have, because we have the league as a network and because the league is a network of, you know, superintendents who are, who are interested in putting in place new programs and ideas and models, it gives us an ecosystem to start with, right? So it's almost like a harvest ground where you can really birth ideas and scale them. So I, we've created a model within the league that allows us to birth these new ideas and allows other districts to then start to utilize them. And then the more and more we create that momentum through partnerships with national organizations of districts, we can start to see the scale start to take shape and the system, what I hope the systemic change that will take shape. Honestly, though, I mean, you can't, you can't do the work of inclusive innovation without thinking differently, right? It's just not possible. And so, so you have to come to the table willing to think differently and willing to be able to move policy and levers that, that have not been, you know, kind of challenged before. That has to be the starting point. That actually leads me to another question. When you think about the work that you're doing in um, Digital Promise and in the centers, I think about what has happened in the spring and what we're now learning as we go into the fall. And you have a unique vantage point to, as you talk to superintendents and districts across the country. What do you think is that short list of things whether it's a policy or a strategy or resetting some expectations that you think need to become part of our best practice for education as we move forward? Well, it's such a great question because there are so many opportunities and doors that are either cracked or starting to Mm -hmm. open that, I mean, you know, having been in this sector for a while and as have you, right, we've seen kind of, I've seen, you know, cracks in the ground that I haven't seen before. So I, I believe that there's, that the the opportunities that will emerge really will center on, I hope, around thinking the recognition, first of all, that it is not the child, it's the system. So I think for the first time in my life in education, I hear people saying that, people that I never thought would say that before. Okay, so, so just that recognition. And then, okay, let's go ahead and let's acknowledge that that is truth. And then being able to start to look at the system from the smallest unit of change, which could be the classroom. Right. So, for example, we're working on a project now around racial equity and social justice discourse in the classroom. Right. So mm-hmm. let's look at let's look at the classroom as like a unit of change. Then let's look at a school building as a unit of change, then a district. Right. And then the system and see if we can work our way through this in such a way where we're kind of weaving as we go. Because I do think that if, if we start to come in with kind of big sweeping ideas and approaches, it's just not going to hold. And so how do you get to the roots of this? And really, the teachers are the ones that are doing this every single day. And so we, we think there's a ton of value in starting there. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. So how is your organization poised to meet some really significant systemic challenges that we see ahead of us? Well, you know, I think that we, what's really interesting about our organization is that we have levers and connections to teachers, to building principals, to to districts. So all the way up the line, it enables us to demonstrate models that work right? Whether you're a teacher, a building principal, or a district leader. And being able to have that through line is really important for organization 
at the national level to be able to demonstrate this and engage in advocacy conversations, right? Engage in conversations at the national level, being able to push, you know, forward initiatives that will be demonstration models. So this teacher of color recruitment and retention work, you know, in this convening next week, you know, it is it is a moment in time where where we as Digital Promise are going to be able to kind of, if you will, put our stamp on this work as being important to the sector and then being able to represent that. And hopefully that will help to start some movement, you know, in our own space. And then with our partnerships, hopefully that will start to, you know, replicate. But it's just, it's inch by inch. It still hasn't Absolutely. changed. Right, you know, right, you know, it's really quiet. (laughs) Yes, but the good news is we're taking those those steps forward, right? Yes, 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 indeed. You know, Kim, I'd like to think that as unexpected and as uncertain as this year has been, there are some silver linings. You mentioned some cracks emerging and so forth. I like to think of silver linings. So from your perspective, what are those silver linings that bring you energy and hope as we continue to reimagine how education can change in order to serve the needs of all of our students? I will share with you that when George Floyd was murdered, I wrote a op-ed and just was so upset by just what I was seeing happen time and time again in this country. And I put out a call to action to white folks in the education sector to sign a, a call to action to be part of the solution intentionally. And 550 people signed and so I didn't expect that and I decided to, I was like, oh my gosh, like there's something here right? This is a silver lining because here are a whole bunch of folks that I know across the sector and beyond who are saying, I want to be part of the solution. And so I ended up leading a group of about 30 to 40 white sea level folks through a process of thinking about privilege and power in the education sector and and racism and what actions could they take in the spirit of of kind of being co-conspirators, such as the abolitionists who helped Harriet Tubman on the Underground Railroad, right? And mm-hmm. and what I what I saw in those conversations is just was really inspiring to me, right? Because it was it was a group of folks who were just willing to kind of look at the world differently and their their selves differently. And so I just want I want to mention that because I think that that was a silver lining for me is that I do see that those kinds of conversations happening, the the reflection happening, and I also see that the I read a book one time that I love called Mastering Life's Energies, and it said just the phrase I am willing is extremely powerful. And I've seen a lot of I am willing actions, both within schools, within district leaders, and just within the sector itself. And so it's given me hope that there's really, you know, a way that we're all starting to come together, uh, which I hope is the beginning and and not just kind of a, a moment in time. You know, Kim, I love that phrase, I am willing, because I think just those words give you a posture of openness Mm -hmm. and a posture of willingness to change. So Mm -hmm. they're very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I'm curious if you have any words of wisdom or closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners as we continue to move through the pandemic and emerge with a stronger focus on what's needed to really ensure that all of our students get the education they deserve. You know, I would just say that I hope that as we go forward together more as a collective, you know, my focus right now is on collective action. 
and how we can use our own platforms to take collective action. So I, my words of wisdom are, I would hope that if someone's listening to this and, and they're working in the education sector, whether as a teacher or a leader or a nonprofit CEO or a for-profit CEO, that we're starting to have what I call peripheral vision in that we're looking across each other to think about what does a movement look like What does collective action look like? And how can we really intersect and merge the work that we're doing in ways that are really going to prioritize the children that have been just overlooked and underserved for um, hundreds of years? So I hope that this work that I'm doing helps to inspire just thoughts around how we can work as a collective going forward. Wow, thank you, Kim. Kim, this has been a very inspiring conversation. I think it is so important that we talk with leaders like you who are making such an important difference in our education community. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jean, for having having me. I really appreciate just an opportunity to share, and I appreciate your questions. They always make me think, so I, uh, thank you. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. And Opportunity Thrives listeners, thank you for your time today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we would love it if you would take just a minute of your time and share your feedback on our show by providing a review on either Spotify or iTunes or whatever platform you listen. And please reach out to us with questions and comments at info at opportunitythrives.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time.